Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep The Gates of Nineveh by Robert E. Howard. First published in Weird Tales, July 1928. And uh, it's not, you know... It's a poem, so it's not very famous. Robert E. Howe's not famous for his poems. But I like them. I, I read them all the time. I like them a lot. I, in calling this one up, I've forgotten there's another story by, or another piece by Howard called The Gates of Empire. And I was conflating the two in my mind. But that one's a historical epic. <laughs> and this one is uh, yeah, much shorter. <laughs> On the other hand, it contains within it, within the story itself, a lot of assumptions that are uh, very epic-like, um, and maybe we can get into those after I get you to uh, read it to me. Do you want to say anything about who Howard is, other than that he is not famous as a poet? Or? Oh, my God. He is um, one of the big three of Weird Tales. Um, who the big three are is... I think slightly subject to revision in our mind today. If if people are thinking about weird tales, generally they think of the big three as H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, and Robert E. Howard. Um, at the time, um, there was another guy who has since been long eclipsed as being you know somebody people think a lot about. His name was Seabury Quinn, and he was probably in the big three. On the other hand, maybe there was a big four. Um, but Robert E. Howard, uh, I mean, people think of him as the as the creator of the sword and sorcery genre. And I think that that makes sense. Um, he certainly pioneered it. He defined it. He, you know, he's the one everybody copies. But to call him that is to sort of misrepresent his total output because he wrote for all sorts of pulp magazines, not just Weird Tales, uh, action stories, um, sea stories, adventure stories, historical stories, um, saucy stories. Crime stories. Yeah, crime stories. And um, I was just uh, thinking about one we did recently, which is his, his version of an Edgar Allan Poe story. He can write anything he puts his mind to. He he wrote Lovecraft stories, except they're, you know, a little less Lovecraft, a little more Robert E. Howard, but you can see that he's doing a Lovecraft story. He was a professional pulp writer. And Clark Ashton Smith dabbled at it, and he eventually quit it, even though he lived a long life. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft barely got published outside of Weird Tales. You know, there was a... a couple issues of astounding and you know there's something here in this little fanzine and oh there's one over in that but mostly weird tales robert e howard's output compared to hp lovecraft's like you know the number of books you put together it's much bigger and he wrote for a long a shorter amount of time so he died at 30 oh my god he started his career uh, his first story in weird tales was when he was a teenager called Spear and Fang, and he was writing, you know, for his high school newspaper, and he just wanted to be a, a professional pulp writer, and he he got that, exactly. And then, 
yeah, he killed himself, but we could have had uh, him be even bigger than he is. Who knows what would have happened? Because just raw storytelling power and an intellect that you can't, uh, you know, he was a boxer. He was a, uh, you know, accountant. But his intellect is on display in this tiny little poem. Um, his his interest in what has happened and how things are and how things are, were put together. I'm, he, he's not really a science fiction guy, but um, he is interested in how to be. He is kind of a, a philosopher, which is, you know, uh, not what most people would think of, but I see it. I read a lot of philosophy, and his stuff is imbued by his philosophies. Wow. That's quite a, quite a scene setting, Jesse. Let's read the poem. Sounds great. The Gates of Nineveh. These are the gates of Nineveh here. Sargon came when his wars were won, gazed at the turrets looming clear, boldly etched in the morning sun. Down from his chariot, Sargon came, tossed his helmet upon the sand, dropped his sword with its blade-like flame, stroked his beard with his empty hand. Towers are flaunting their banners red. The people greet me with song and mirth, but a weird is on me, Sargon said, and I see the end of the tribes of earth. Cities crumble and chariots rust. I see through a fog that is strange and gray, all kingly things fade back to the dust, even the gates of Nineveh. Yeah, <laughs> so that's the very first thing that strikes me is I'm pronouncing Nineveh wrong. <laughs> I'm calling it Nineveh, <laughs> and it's Nineveh because he rhymes it with gray. And um... Or it's a slant rhyme, and that dissonance is perhaps part of what he aims for as a poet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he knows what he's doing, I think. Um, like I said, he, he's a philosopher. So he's taken this historical figure, Sargon. And wait, wait, wait. Yep. I'm sorry. There is a question that I, I think we ought to at least pose, whether or not you and I decide to answer it, that can't be posed later than this moment. All right. It seems to me that there are many, many things in this poem that you or I and many other people could discuss because they have extrinsic knowledge to bring to bear mm -hmm. on this poem. But what if you didn't? Oh, yeah. What, yeah. If, what if you just thought, well, it's in Weird Tales. He made up this, the names of Nineveh and Sargon. What if, I guess what I'm saying is, are there different poems here? Poems a poem for readers who know none of these references, a poem for readers who know many of these references, a poem for readers who know lots of these references. Mm. Are there different poems here? I don't know if you want to address that question. Yeah, no, I think that's... I think it's worth thinking about before we, we actually make sure we all think of the same other knowledge. Yeah, no, you're right. There, in fact, this is... Um, this is partially his dilemma, uh, Robert E. Howard's dilemma. Robert E. Howard wanted to write historical fiction. That was his 
preferred means of uh, preferred output. Um, there were a couple of magazines, Magic Carpet and uh, Oriental Stories, where those stories were purchased. They were spin-offs of Weird Tales, and um, they are amazing as well. But they're not popular. Not like Conan is popular and Call is popular and Solomon Kane is popular. Uh, the historical adventures, uh, these historical pieces, are less magical because they're rooted in reality. They're this historical figure in this historical setting. What if this historical theory is true? Let's have an adventure set there. Most of the characters are uh, real people, and then there'd be maybe one character whose author insert. Um, in those situations, um, Robert E. Howard is having as much fun as he possibly can. In <laughs> situations where mostly in Weird Tales, he is forced to rhyme history uh, in order to do enough output because historical research is incredibly in-depth work. You know, finding out what people of the period would think of uh, a sword of this shape as being called is even difficult. When Robert E. Howard is writing his Conan stuff, he doesn't have to worry. He can mix and match and use whatever he likes because this is not a real time. In looking at this story as the the one we're looking at here, this poem, looking at this as if I was completely ignorant. And to be frank, Eric, uh, I'm not so good on the ancient Mesopotamians. I know about Aww. these guys, but I, I wasn't sure which Sargon this was because there's at least two Sargons, right? So I had to look all right. that stuff up afterwards. I'd heard of Nineveh, but if you you said pick it out on this map of of the Middle East, I would mm, around here, right? Like uh, there's so many of these ancient ancient cities. So I'm kind of in that position when I first read it, and now having read it uh, a few times and looked at it with the historical, I can see both. And so I can sort of uh, do that bivalent switch and just go back and forth. Uh, this is a uh, fantasy for, of, of some period uh, before the flood or whatever, or it's a future story set on another planet, or it's a historical. <laughs> st so I have no problem with any of this. But you're right. Most people probably wouldn't be in that exact position as I am where I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, everybody has a different starting place. So yeah, you can read it based solely on the relationship of its words to its words, the sounds to its sounds and, you know, knowing what a hand is, but not knowing, um, uh, what the chariot looked like. Or knowing of Sargon as an historical figure. Right, right. Or where Nineveh is, or was. Right. Well, it's still there. It's just changed its name. It's Mosul now. Mm -hmm. And uh, the gates um, that were mentioned in this uh, were rebuilt and have subsequently been destroyed again. So. Yep. There's yep. A, a lot of... <laughs> uh, is it um, a vision of, of the future? Did uh, Robert E. Howard in 1928 envision all that would for, for come in the 20th, uh, 20th and 21st centuries? Mm. 
we can go there, but I don't think we should. I think um, this this it is interesting. Go for it. Well, it is interesting though that whether we want to attribute prophecy to Howard, Howard is attributing prophecy to Sargon. Yes. This is not that. Right. Um, as far as I can tell, that is that is not a historical fact about Sargon that that he was he was a prophet. Um, he had vision for sure, but as a, a vision of, I mean, maybe we should get this out of the way first. This is a, one of the reasons I wanted to send this one to you is because I think this poem is interacting with another poem or a pair of poems that we've done um, uh, about a certain s- statue in the desert, Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I think that this is... Uh, uh, a, his response to that. And that's why I wanted to send this to you because I think, oh, Eric will like this because we've already talked about Ozymandias and the different visions of it. Uh, yep. Percy Shelley, right? Shelley? Yeah. I, I think we should stick with Shelley. That's the only one that's well known. Mm-hmm. And, and but, you know, his, his friend. But yes, it's Shelley. Too. Yeah. Yes, but that is. My guess is that Howard would not, he may not even no, have known no, it, but no. even if he had known it, he, I don't think he would in any sense figure that his readers would pick up on it. But Shelley's Ozymandias is one of the most famous poems in English, so it's not unreasonable for him to get that. Maybe I can just read it quickly, because the last two lines are crucial um, in understanding at the at in the the rich way you and I tend to. Um, the gates of Nineveh. So here's Shelley. I met a man from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survived, stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. <clears throat> Most people remember that line, look upon, or look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, from the beginning of the 19th century. Some people, if they study it, know that Ozymandias is perhaps another name for Tutankhamun. Um, it doesn't matter. It's some kind of guy who thinks that what he has succeeded in creating will last forever. Right. And the point Shelley is making is, <clears throat> not so, not so. You can say it, Ozymandias, but then the traveler includes Ozymandias's words within his own, and then the poet includes the traveler's words within his own. One of the things that's great about Shelley's poem is that Ozymandias is gone, his statues are gone, but Shelley's poem goes on. Mm. So it says something about the relationship of language to the things language represents. So now I'm going to throw something at you. Mm -hmm. Sargon 
is often thought to be Nimrod. Mm-hmm. And Nimrod is often thought to be the builder of the Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that Sargon is the exact opposite of Ozymandias, mm-hmm. he does prophesy his own fall or the impermanence of what he does. Is it possible that Howard is responding to the notion of the permanence of language as opposed to the permanence of things? So that when he says at the end, cities crumble and chariots rust, I see through a fog that is strange and gray, all kingly things fade back to dust, even the gates of Nineveh. Those lines do not fade. They do not go away. Can Howard be criticizing Shelley for giving us a foolish king by suggesting that you could have even a prescient king Yeah. so long as he understands the power of words? What's what's funny is uh, I think this is a pretty obscure poem where Shelley's isn't, right? And True. why is that? Why is that? I, I, it's the history of stories and poems and how they they remain. It's almost like after the author dies, after the publisher's book comes out, it it's up to readers and champions to pick up that book and pass it on. And uh, I can't predict the future. I. I Doubt that you and I in this podcast are able to take this poem and champion it in a way that will make it rival Ozymandias and Percy Shelley. I doubt that that's the case, but I've been wrong about stuff before and I could be wrong about this. (laughs) It could be that uh, in another 10 years, someone else picks it up and they said, you know, that poem, The Gates of Nineveh, it's, it's growing in stature in our minds. It's rivaling. And what's funny is I see this this happens, you know, it's it's happened many times in history. People didn't think much of Moby Dick when it came out. Most people mm. did not champion it, did not think it was special. They were much more excited about his other books, especially his, you know, travel logs that were, you know, thinly veiled, you know, autobiography. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, 40 years after the fact that, People started saying, no, this is a great book. And, uh, you know, even if you haven't read Moby Dick yet, which everybody should because it's so great, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you've you've heard that it's great. You've heard that it's great. And maybe one day I'll get to it. Um, And so it is the job of the people who received the words to take them up and, and pass them on. And... I think that there is, uh, in this meta-critique of what's actually happening, I think that it's not going to be the case that Robert E. Howard's poetry is ever going to outweigh his, or at least not any time in the, in the, in the near future. It's never going to outweigh his, his power in prose. But if he wrote nothing other than his poetry he would still have a reputation because I've read a lot of his poetry and it is not, it is not as famous as most uh, people, you know, it's not E.E. Cummings famous, right? But he has power in his prose 
as well as in his poetry that is a poetical power. And I think there is something of a critique here, but I'm I'm less sure about what he's thinking about the future as as much as he's thinking about the past. I think this is when I read it, I thought this is his critique of Shelley <laughs> and Osmanius. Oh. I thought this is him saying no, no, um, because his kings are philosophical, and this is you know his King Call character who we've covered um, uh, in the mirrors of Tuzantun. Um, he is subject to uh, these deep philosophical thoughts. It's almost cosmicism, thinking about deep time and the end of the at the end of the earth, and that's what's this story is about it's it's not about sargon's conquests it's him coming back from battle dropping the sword from his hand bringing it up to his beard stroking it i'm imagining <laughs> and saying i envision when all of this is gone these towers are broken these battlements and the people who live within it are gone too are gone sargon <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, that it certainly is a response, among other things. It's a response to, to Shelley. Um, Shelley, you remember, I just read it, uh, has the traveler report that he sees the face in the sand. Mm-hmm. I, I picture it as a half-buried face yep. looking up like a Seward Johnson uh, sculpture. And when here Sargon tosses his helmet upon the sand, I see it lying in the sand, half buried, mm, mm. face up, but empty. Yep. And the reason it's empty is because he's not part of it yet. He's still alive to deal with it. Shelley has this double nesting. I met a traveler, and then the traveler speaks. And then the traveler's speaking is, includes the, um, the epigraph, the, the words from Ozymandias that are engraved on the statuary. Um, here, so it, it begins with, I met a traveler from an antique land, and it ends with the words of Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. Here, it begins, these are the gates of Nineveh, and then the last half is the, are the words of Sargon. Right. So it follows the same thing. Words are enormously important. It makes me, though, ask a question, and this is one which I would kind of sort of, well, I don't know if it's an elevation or not. Shelley says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. We don't know who I is. Nope. Howard says, these are the gates of Nineveh. Here Sargon came when his wars were won, blah, 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 blah. Who says these are the gates of Nineveh? It's not an I. Nope. It's a more omniscient poetic voice. And I would like to propose, given what we've seen about Babel, the impermanence of words, that words only can, in fact, turn out to be true if they accord with fate, um, that these are the gates of Nineveh refers to the words that are this poem. Huh. Yeah, that's right. So if that makes sense, I will direct those of us who are not fluent in Old English 
to note that in the third stanza, when uh, when Sargon begins speaking, he says, towers are flaunting their banners red. He's criticizing his own establishment. Mm-hmm. The people greet me with song and mirth. He is saying that they are foolish to take so much stock in a military victory. Mm-hmm. But a weird is on me. Mm. That's a very weird locution, even in 1928. Yep. The word weird comes from the old English word that means fate. Mm-hmm. And it also means power or enchantment. Mm-hmm. Enchantment, break down, you know, the, the etymology, chanting is singing. Mm-hmm. Enchantment is to be carried away by the power of language. Right. You are enchanted, right? They cast a spell on someone. A weird is on me, Sargon said. So something from without has fated him, but it has given him the language so that he can see the end of the tribes of earth. He's not seeing only his own end. Right. As opposed, you know, Ozymandias is only his empire that's at stake. But Howard, now we go back to the fantasist, the science fiction writer. Howard has Sargon see the end of the tribes of earth. This is a much more widespread recognition. Yep. It's not just the powerful are wrong, or anyone who thinks well of himself can turn out to be wrong in the long run. Sargon, Howard is having us, is saying, everything that people do can pass away, even the gates of Nineveh. Now, if you accept the notion that I'm suggesting that, in part, that first line, these are the gates of Nineveh, refers not only to the actual case of Nineveh, which were destroyed, as you point out, and so on, but to the poem that this is. Then the last line, all kingly things fade back to the dust, even the gates of Nineveh, is that nameless poetic voice saying, and my poem too. Almost, Eric. You know, I'm very involved in the scanning community, which is basically just a lot of people who take old magazines and scan them. <laughs> yeah. And um, this was uh, this is not, a, you know, it's not a commonly reprinted poem. It's getting easier now with the technology we have and the Internet and all that. But it's almost like this. The, I, I didn't scan personally most of the copies of Weird Tales that I have. I did scan a few, and that makes me very proud because out there on the Internet, people can get these things. And the papers crumble, like it literally crumbles apart. And once that's gone, the words are gone. It is uh, a point of pride with me that every time I kill a particular copy of a magazine, I'm making it more available and thus spreading it out in a way that allows it to live longer. And thinking of that, I am trying to preserve the gates of Nineveh, but I, yeah, the digital resources will go and eventually the planet will be eaten by the sun. And uh, unless it's been transmitted to Alpha Centauri or whoever's out there, no one else is going to get to read this poem. And he's right, the tribes of men will be destroyed. And uh, I, I love the image. That's, you know, he's just so great. The imagery, he drops his, he drops down from his chariot. 
he tosses his helmet upon the sand, and it would fall naturally because of gravity. He he drops his sword like a like it's a flame, and flames burn out. Right? He's just back from the wars. Clearly, he strokes his beard with his empty hand. His hand is not empty if it's in his beard. Right? He has his beard, but the emptiness uh, shows uh, what's to come in a certain sense. And then he, he, he says these words and to who, as you're pointing out, there is no, um, guy meeting a traveler from an antique land who's quoting something else. Who is, who is Sargon talking to here? He's talking to us, I guess. Towers are flaunting their banners red. The people greet me with a song and mirth, but a weird is on me. Sargon said, and I see the ends of the tribes of earth. He's telling us, we are yeah. there with him. Cities crumble and chariots rust. What's before him? The city. What's behind him? The chariot. I see through a fog that is strange and gray. All kingly things fade back to dust, to the dust, even the gates of Nineveh. So it's uh, it's almost like he's in this transition period. This is a image frozen in ice between him getting back from these if you are familiar with his his history of of conquering the lands around and making peace with other kingdoms and you know a very successful king and then he comes back and he sees the city all in in party mode because the king's back and he's conquered everything and he's no 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 and he drops his sword and he throws his helmet to the ground and he doesn't need his chariot anymore all of these things burn out. All of this will be gone. I'm I'm in a weird mood, man. And then he demonstrates what we always notice. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.